Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 41 this morning, and you can find it on page 928 in the Pew Bibles. Now, you have probably been told that there are two types of people in the world, though if you keep reading psychological studies, they keep adding letters, right? So there's type A and there's type B, right? There's those who are just sort of competitive, outgoing, planners, organized, just kind of going after things. They're impatient and or aggressive. And then you've got this other type of people that are much more laid back and relaxed, uh, maybe expressive, emotional, just kind of chill about life, right? And you've kind of got this group over here, and they're more active. They're, they're going after things, while this group over here is more passive. There are those who seek, uh, who, who see things happen. There are those over here that, that make things happen. These guys, they're willing to work, and these guys are willing to let them work, right? There are these people, they typically, they're morning people, and then there's those kind of people that want to shoot the morning people in the head, right? No. Well, in the church, you can see two types of people as well. There are those who are more expressive, and there are those who are more contemplative. There are those who are more confrontational in nature, just kind of out there, you know, confront this, deal with this. And then there are those that are just, they're much more patient, quiet, caring, You've got those who are really zealous. You've got those who are more at rest. You've got those who really want to see change and actively pursue gospel transformation. And then there are those who really just want to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so depending on how you might identify yourself this morning, you really get to appreciate one half of this sermon more than the other, right? Because I'm speaking to both people. But there's going to be part of this where you're just like, yeah, that's right. I'm all about that. And then the other half is really going to challenge you in ways that you probably won't want to be challenged. But here's the thing, guys. The gospel confronts both personality types. It confronts us all in who we are. And it holds these things in tension. It doesn't cater to who we identify ourselves to be. It it holds them together. There's activity with rest. There's zeal with godliness. There's ambition with patience. There's confrontation with caring. Or to maybe say it in the negative, there's, there's redemption without revolution. There's transformation without transgression. In Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41, we are going to see and get a glimpse of just a deep impact that the gospel has on the world around them, how it is transforming and changing the economy, the culture, the religion of that day there in Ephesus, and it should have that kind of impact on us and on the world today, but not in a seditious, heavy-handed, belligerent, belittling, or condemning way. It's redemption without rebellion or revolution. It's the upward call of Christ without uprising. It's awakening without aggression. It's true spiritual change without political coup. This passage will challenge our beliefs in the life-transforming power of the gospel and will call each and every one of us to actively engage in world-changing mission, starting first in our own hearts, but it will do so without compromising the character of Christ. It will upset the status quo, the everyday, normal, mundane, this is what you experience in the world, but it will do it without insurrection. And ironically, it's going to do that in the midst of a riot. And so what we're going to see this morning from Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41, is Gospel ministry transforms without transgression. Gospel ministry transforms without transgression. And we want to pray that the Lord would be at work to transform us even this morning as we read. And so please turn your attention to the text, Acts 19, beginning in verse 21. 
It says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying, Gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged. And they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said this, these things, he dismissed the assembly. Now, this is actually a very unique passage in the book of Acts. Because it's told from the perspective of those who do not follow Christ. Right? If you notice, there's, there's no sermon. Right? It's not one of the Christians, one of the apostles, or someone from the early church that's speaking there. You have an account from the mouth of Demetrius, this, this idol maker, this idol worshiper, this silversmith. And you have the retelling of the account of the town clerk. Both of them are non-Christians. Both of them do not follow Christ, but both of them are telling from their own mouths the effect that the gospel is having on their city, on their way of life. It's really a fascinating passage. It's really, really unique. And, and, Paul, and Luke includes this because it's more, more than simply for the fact that it's a, a, it's a wow factor. He wants us to see, more, more specifically, he wants the guy that he originally wrote to, Theophilus, to see that though the gospel causes all sorts of commotion, it's of no threat to the government. He wants us to understand that, look, the gospel really is transforming the way that people are living. It's transforming the culture. It's upsetting the status quo, but not because Christ's followers are seditious rebels. It's change without wrongdoing. And so that, that is, is hard for us to understand. And so we want to look at each of those in turn. And so first, gospel ministry transforms. Now we say that the gospel is a life-transforming message. And, and I pray that each of us would believe 
that the gospel is a life-transforming message. But here's the thing. If people hear the gospel and people receive the gospel and people are transformed by the gospel, if you put these transformed gospel people together as a church and they live life together, guess what's going to happen? It's going to have an impact on the world around them. Not because that's their ultimate goal. It's not that the goal of the church, the mission of the church, is to redeem culture, to make the world a better place. And so if you just come to Jesus, then you can somehow change the world around you. Let's just use Jesus to make the world a better place, to make it more loving, to make it more peaceful, to make it more law-abiding, to make it more moral. To, if we just come to Jesus, if we come to Christ, then, then we can, by really by our own strength, even though we want to say it's in the power of the Holy Spirit, but in our own strength, we can vanquish things like poverty or, or inequality or, or violence. Some people actually treat it that way. That you try to preach Jesus for the sake of change. But that's not what the church does. No, our ultimate goal is to know and love and tell others about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And by doing that, we are changed, and they are changed, and as a byproduct, culture's changed. The way that we go through life is different because we know and love Jesus. That's the means through which God himself changes the hearts of other people. We don't preach Jesus for the sake of change. We preach Jesus and people are changed. And when people's lives are changed, it impacts the way they live in the world. And as a byproduct of our living for Christ... Our community, our culture is impacted. Again, not because our goal is to redeem culture, but our goal is to love Jesus. And by doing that, people and even aspects of our community and our culture will be redeemed. But not all of it. Friends, let's keep in mind what Paul is doing here in this passage. It's the same thing we've seen him doing uh, throughout the book of Acts, same thing he's been doing for the last three years that he's spent here in Ephesus. He's reasoning and persuading from Scripture in the synagogue to the Jews or in the hall of Tyrannus among the Gentiles. And through that, we've seen signs and wonders being performed, sound doctrine clearly taught. People are confessing their sin and pursuing godly living as they are taught what it means to turn away from the false gods, turn away from false religion, and follow the one true God through faith in Jesus Christ. And people are changing. The word of the Lord continues to increase and prevail mightily. And so, Verse 21 says that after these things that I just described to you, after these events took place, Paul resolved in the spirit to return again to Macedonia and Achaia and once more to go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And so again, we see Paul's priority in ministry is not to lead out in the transformation of culture, but he's doing what he's always been doing. He's engaging and evangelizing the lost. He's establishing new believers in the faith. He's equipping the church for the work of ministry, and he's expanding the mission of Christ to the uttermost ends of the earth for the glory of Christ's name, so that Christ's name might be known to the ends of the earth. That's his ministry. That's his priority. That's the mission of the church. His goal is to preach Christ for the salvation of souls and the building up of the body. It's not to see culture change. And in verse 22, we see that though his desire is to make his way back to Macedonia, to make his way back to Achaia, to go once again to Jerusalem where he's already been, and then from there to launch out on yet another missionary journey to Rome, to a place where he has not been, it became clear that he needed to stay a while longer in Ephesus. And so he sent Timothy and Erastus on ahead. And so though he was resolved in the Spirit to go and to get the gospel out there, he's also submitted to the Spirit's timing. And so he stayed a while longer in Asia. Guys, this is, this is really key for us because especially for people like me who are very, very impatient and want really good things for all the wrong reasons uh, sometimes. Because here's the deal. You might have a call from God placed upon your life to say you need to go and do this. But God doesn't say when. 
And even if God says when, God might also say, okay, that's going to be the case for you. But for right now, here's where you need to be. And we see this example in Paul. That though he is submitted to the Spirit in every way, he does not run roughshod over the Spirit's direction in his life, but he submits himself and prioritizes the church. If God has placed a call on your life, he doesn't necessarily say when and how that's going to be. And we've got to be careful that our plans and our priorities do not supersede his in the way that this calling is sought to be fulfilled. It's not in our own strength. It's not in our own timing. It's not in our own power. It is in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul stayed longer for the good of the church. And in verse 23, it says that about that time, right after he sent Timothy and Erastus ahead and he's hanging back for the good of the church, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. And you got to love the way that Luke talks about this. Like this is a riotous mob and he says, it's no little disturbance. Right? It's like, I have no little hunger right now. I'm, you know, a little ready to, to go home and take a nap after this or, or whatever might be your no little disturbance going on with you right now. But, but he goes on and he says, this man named Demetrius, a, a silversmith who made shrines, uh, silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. And so what we have here is a guild. We have a a labor union. And he says to them, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's a danger not only of this trade of ours, this idol-making venture uh, may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis herself may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed of her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And so here you've got this Gentile silversmith, this idol-maker, and he's gathering his local labor union, number 001, because he's concerned about how the gospel is transforming their way of life. And he mentions three ways that the gospel is impacting their society. He says, first, there was this economic change. Their trade was falling into disrepute. The sale of idols is where they had their wealth, and their pocketbooks were being affected by by Paul's gospel ministry. We saw this last time in, in, in chapter 19, verses what 19 through 20, where just even those, those Christians were, began divulging their practices of divination. They brought all these books together and burned them, and it, the amount came to about 50,000 pieces of silver. And so right, this, you can imagine what effect that would be like. Okay, suddenly those, all that book sales, gone. Now, it's affecting the sale of these idols. Second, there was this cultural and civic change in verse 26. You see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away or led astray a great many people. So you've got this large number of citizens of Asia who've been persuaded by the gospel and now they have turned away from idols. Friends, this is an upheaval of society. Imagine what would happen if a great many people from, say, the United States suddenly became Muslim. You think that wouldn't impact our culture? And then the third, religious change. Right? So we've got economic change, cultural change, religious change. Right? People are not buying idols because they no longer believe that these gods are gods at all. And so the temple itself may even be counted as nothing. Artemis may be deposed of her magnificence. Well, you know, you can add prophecy to the the job description or the skill set of Demetrius right there because that's exactly what happens. And the result is this. Look, if you affect economy, then you affect culture. If you lose Artemis, then you lose Ephesus. The people are still there, the art's still there, the trade is still there, but it's all radically changed by the gospel. Ephesus, as they knew it, was changing. And what was driving this change? Was it because Paul stirred up a mob? They all grabbed their hammers and their pitchforks and their, and their torches and they went and they started burning 
all of, of the shrines and all of the temples and all of the, the huts that the tradesmen used to, to make these idols? No. He did it through a message. Now, Demetrius only got half of that message. The half that he understood was that Paul was saying that these gods that, that we make with hands, they're not gods. The part that he missed was that the long-awaited, long-promised Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has come to free you from all that would enslave you, all that would hinder you, all that would lead you to give your life and worship to something that cannot satisfy. And that through his life and through his resurrection, through his death on the cross and his, being, his coming to life again, you can have new life. A life in which you are offered, you are welcomed into God's eternal kingdom. A kingdom that far, far exceeds any man-made substitute that Artemis or Ephesus could give you. You see, the gospel challenges the gods of culture. These gods that, that you try to make with your hands, they're not gods at all. And when people realize that, that these are not true gods, you know what they do? They give them up. Now you, might not, you, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, well, you know, that's fine for these Ephesians or these Asians or these, you know, these Roman citizens, because that was way back then. You know, people actually, they did that. They bowed down to these little trinkets and and they sacrificed things and they they performed all of these rituals but but we're not superstitious like that we're not misled like that we're far too intelligent for that that's not us we don't deal with that same kind of thing well friends you may may not have little figurines that are made of of gold or silver or wood that you bow down to but that does not mean that your hearts are not full of idols You see, behind all of those trappings, behind the liturgy, behind the images, behind the stories that they tell, is the true nature of an idol. And you want to know what an idol is? An idol, idols are longings. Idols are values. Idols are desires. Idols are, are belief systems. Idols are ideologies. Idols are these ruling desires in our hearts that lead us to do certain things and to live certain ways. They're loves that we place before God. They just gave them a form and a liturgy. The only difference is they ascribed images and stories and religious practices to personify their values and desires and longings. But we do that too. We just call them by a different name. We call them celebrities. Sports heroes, actors, the rich, the beautiful, the successful, even religious leaders can become idols for us. You see, here's the thing. In that day, if you desired beauty, if you desired passion, if you desired love, if you desired physical intimacy, then Epaphrodite was the goddess that you worshipped. She was the one that could promise to get you those things. And so you went and you worshipped her so that you could get what you wanted. If you pursued reason, science, wisdom, intellect, education, academia, right? That's where it's at. Then Athena was your goddess. We have a very large temple devoted to her, not too far from us. If you wanted to be athletic or you wanted to be powerful, then you worshiped Hermes or Ares. And if you desired success, money, prosperity, comfort, ease, security. If you wanted to be moral and you wanted your kids to be morally pure, then Artemis was the goddess that you worshipped. You see, idolatry is just as prevalent today 
even if we don't worship in the same way. We may not go to temples like the temple of Artemis, but we're longing the same for the same values behind the idol, and that is why we worship. Let's be honest for like two seconds with ourselves. I mean, who does not want to be successful? Who does not want security and comfort and ease? Who does not want their kids not to rebel, but to walk the straight and narrow? And so who doesn't want Artemis, even if you don't call her that? You see, an idol is anything, anything in your life that you make into an ultimate thing. Where that becomes first, that becomes your greatest priority. Whatever you put first in your life, there can be social idols, there can be personal idols, there can even be religious idols. Whether it's a good thing that you want too much or or a bad thing, anytime we place something above or equal to God, it is an idol. We can do that with family, we can do it with sports, we can do it with school, with money, with relationships, with comfort, with popularity, we can do it with anything. An idol is anything that you will sacrifice yourself for or sacrifice maybe others. We see a lot of child sacrifices today. They just come in the form of sacrificing my family for the sake of my career. They are things that you serve, that you seek after, that you speak frequently of, that you spend your resources on, those things that you ultimately trust in for your happiness or that you think constantly about. It's what you sin to get, or it's what you sin because you don't get it. It's that thing where it's just like, you know what, if, if only I have this, then my life will be okay. But if I lose this, I don't know how I'll go on. Whatever that blank is for you, it's a pretty good chance that that's an idol. Anything that we desire more than God is idolatry. Methods might look different, but it's, it's in our hearts the same. And, and friends, this is not just the case for somebody who does not know or follow Christ. Now, obviously, Ephesians 2 is pretty clear. Look, look before, before God made you alive, guess what? You were dead in your sin, right? You... You were enslaved by your sin. You followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once walked in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I mean, that's, that's all of us before Christ. But even after that, we have the potential to still worship idols. If you want to think of your heart as a temple, Right? Before you come to Christ, your, your heart is maybe full of all sorts of shrines that are devoted to these values, these desires, these longings, these ideologies. And when they're confronted by Christ, yeah, they're toppled down. And there's this throne that's placed there in our temple. Christ takes his seat upon it, but it doesn't mean that we aren't tempted to try to raise those altars again, to raise those shrines to those things that we once loved and held so dear. We don't worship in temples, but instead what we might do is we might go to God and we try to barter with Him to get what we truly want. Right? Just like, yeah, I, I want Jesus, but I also want this other thing too. And maybe, maybe if I go to God and I pray to Him enough, He'll give me what I really want. Well, friends, if that's the case, we're no different than the Ephesians who bartered with Artemis to get what they wanted. The methods might look different, but the mindset is the same. You appeal to a higher power in order to get what you most desire. And if you desire anything more than God, it is idolatry. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ confronts these idols of the heart and they reveal to us It reveals to us that these are not gods at all, that they cannot satisfy, that they cannot truly fulfill our desires. They cannot truly give us what we want. And so why would we worship them? Why would we bow down to them? Why would we make them ultimate things? Though they might be good things, they might be gifts from God himself even. Why would we make them into ultimate things in our lives? 
As these Ephesians and these people throughout Asia came to realize that idols made without hands are not gods, what they did was they turned to the one who was truly magnificent and truly alone worthy of all worship. They saw their need of Jesus and how he is the only one that can truly give our hearts, longings, their fulfillment. And friends, if, I don't know about you, but when I look at this text, the first question that I ask every time, every time, even now, I know the answer. I've preached this text before. Is why don't we see this kind of culture change today? Why, why, don't, why don't we see the same type of transformation, this economic, cultural, religious change happening in our day? Well, you could say, okay, you know, the Holy Spirit was obviously working in a very particular way, and yes, that's true. We don't, we don't have any control over that. Sometimes we look at Paul, it's like, well, Paul's a super gifted guy, so maybe if I just adopt certain methodologies or I try different things, this will be the outcome. And, and maybe there's, there's a, a smidgen of something to that, but ultimately, that's not the answer to the question. The real, the real reason why, there's two main reasons why we don't see this type of culture change in our day in our lives is because one, we have taken on the same idols of our culture and two, we don't truly believe that the gospel has the power to transform. This first one, we've taken on the idols of our culture. We want Jesus, but, but if we're honest, we want all that other stuff too. We want it so much that, that when people look at us, they don't see a difference. They don't see us living and looking different than, than everybody else in the world. They're just like, okay, that's just like everybody else and, and they claim to be Christians. Okay, so what? Right? When we look at this, I, you know, like the gospel exposes, it identifies, it discerns and destroys these idols in our hearts. But oftentimes we go through life and we can't even really discern what idols are there. We don't really know. Friends, this is why we gather the way we do. We preach the way we do. We, we encourage you towards community groups and life transformation groups the way we do because we want to help you to discern idols in your hearts. We're not willing, once, even when we know what they are, we're not always willing to destroy them. And if we're not willing to discern and expose and destroy the idols in our hearts, well, then how can we stand before anyone else and, and to help them to see that gods made with hands are not gods? Because you're just like, well, okay, you got gods right there. See how that affects our message. can't really be willing to challenge the idols of the day to show them for what we tr they truly are if we're loving the same things. And not only that, you know, we've we got to ask ourselves the question, do we truly believe that the gospel really does have the power to change people? It's one thing to affirm that in concept. It's another thing to believe it in reality, to truly believe that God is greater than the idols of the day, that there really is reason to love him more than all that other stuff. And so what we do is we, we subtly, we kind of quietly compromise. We buy into the message of the day that God's not really greater than the idols of our day. And so what we try to do is we try to live a passive, quiet, complacent, fearful life because deep down we doubt that God could really do this. That this kind of thing that we're reading, even from the voice of unbelievers, can't possibly be true. We secretly wonder if this kind of culture change that we read here could ever, ever happen. And so we go through life whipped. The dog with the tail between its legs. We live as though the gospel has no power. We affirm it in principle. We affirm it in concept, but without confidence to really see any fruit. Friends, this is rampant 
in our churches. This is rampant among many who would call themselves Christians. The gospel has been compromised. And when it is, the mission and purpose of the church is lost. We end up making things like obedience and transformation and discipleship optional when we compromise the truth and power of Jesus Christ. Missions becomes a program. Ministry is left to the professionals, to those people that we think are holier than thou. And in every way, we may have the appearance of godliness, but in reality, we are denying its power. But friends, this passage from the lips of an unbeliever reminds us that the gospel is indeed the power of God for salvation, for transformation, for all who would believe. This passage serves to remind us that God really has given us all that we need through his divine power, for life and godliness, all that pertain to it through a knowledge of him who has called us into his own glory and excellence, a glory and excellence that far exceeds the glory and excellence of the best that this world has to offer. And if we buy that, if we believe that, if we live for that, guess what happens? People see it too. We're meant to live in such a way that people see the glory of Christ. They see his excellence And they honor him, they praise him, they turn from their gods to serve him. That's transformation. The gospel really has the power, that kind of power, to upset the status quo. The power to turn the world upside down. But just because gospel ministry transforms, it does not mean that everyone will be transformed. And just because the gospel challenges the idols of the day, it doesn't mean that people are going to like it. That people are just going to welcome it in and be happy. Oh, you want to come in and tell me that that all of these things that I love and hold so dear are not God's at all and that I should turn away from them and follow Jesus? Sounds great. They're not going to do that. Some will, by God's grace, but not because we've done anything. No, see, people have no problem with your otherworldly religion as long as it remains just that, otherworldly. Right? You, you, you want to hold to that foolish concept of, that Jesus was born of a virgin? You know, fine, whatever. You know, that, that's okay. You, you want to hold to the fact that he died on a cross and, and, and rose again? You know, that, that's fine. You want to believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Okay, you know, that, you know, whatever. You want to believe that people who do not repent of their sin and believe in him will, will suffer an eternal condemnation in hell? I'm like, okay, you know. Fine, I don't, I don't care if you believe that God is a fluffy pink elephant. It doesn't matter. But the second that that otherworldly religion starts having an impact on this world, no way. Anger ensues. As long as it doesn't supersede whatever I set as my priority, science, or, or it's used to impose outdated mores, but then who gets to decide what science and outdated mores are? As long as it doesn't affect my way of life, then okay. But the second that it does, people are enraged. That's what happens here, right? Verse 28. When these people heard this, when they got stirred up by Demetrius, They were enraged and they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with this confusion. And they all rushed together into the theater and dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So these are, again, brand new believers. It's always funny. They don't drag Paul into the middle of it. They always kind of grab like the newest, weakest believer they possibly can, try to hold that guy accountable. Did it with Jason and and the brothers there in Thessalonica. Now they're doing it with Gaius and Aristarchus. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, these are high-ranking officers in the province of, of Asia, these who were friends of his. And so, I guess, unlike Garth Brooks, right, Paul has friends in high places. 
They sent to him, and, and they were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together, and quite honestly, they did not care. They did not care what was true, what was right. All they cared about at that moment was that they got what they wanted. So some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forward. And so more than likely, this is a Jew. This is not a Christian who's speaking on behalf of the Jews in order to try to distance themselves from Christians. You know, just like, okay, I, I know that Paul's a Jew and, and I'm a Jew, but you got to believe us that we're not the same here. That's not, a, that's not Judaism in any way. That's a, that's a different thing. Right? And so you know, he's motioning with his hand, wanting to make his defense. But when the crowd recognized that he was a Jew, it did not matter. And so they shouted for two hours with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, you got to love the skepticism of the day, right? Because if you read commentaries on this, depending on who they're coming from, they'll doubt the historicity of this event. Because who would really stand around for two hours and cry out in a loud voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians? And I'm just curious, have you ever been to a picket line or to a protest. I mean, wouldn't it be great if, if the riots that took place in Ferguson only lasted two hours? Wouldn't that be phenomenal? But friends, that's because we severely misunderstand what a big deal Artemis was. Archaeologists have found 33 shrines in or around Ephesus that were devoted to this goddess and the temple of Artemis was the greatest. You need to understand that the temple of Artemis was the largest building in the Greek world at that time. In fact, it is one of the seven great wonders of the world. If you ever learned about that when you were young, right? Every year, there was this week-long festival called Artemision that the Greek world celebrated. We only devote one day to Christmas. They had a whole week for her. The great temple of Artemis held this sacred stone that, 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 that fell from the sky. And they believed that this was a gift from Artemis herself. So here they have this tangible, this worldly expression, this physical thing that represented their otherworldly faith. They could touch it. They could go see it. They could kiss it. They could celebrate it. Friends, if, if God were to do something like that, right? If God were to, say, cause a, a glowing 30-foot-long rock that fell from the sky shaped in the image of Jesus upon the cross, do not think for a second that many people who call themselves Christians would be tempted to worship it. The Catholic Church would probably build a cathedral around it and charge a mission so you could go in and kiss it. We want so desperately to have some this-worldly, tangible evidence of our otherworldly faith. So much so that we would be tempted to do the same. But even this, I mean, think about something more daily, more practical to most of our lives. Think about sporting events. I mean, let's, let's face it, guys. If Cubs fans could sing that ridiculous Go Cubs Go song for five minutes, then you could totally believe that a group of 12,000 people could gather together and yell, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. You could totally buy into it. And do you think that sporting events don't have their own liturgy? Guys, I went to a U of I basketball game a couple of years ago, and I swear to you, they had cheers and chants programmed out to the very minute. It's like you just watch the clock and like as soon as it was like, bam, you're like there was another, bam, there was another. And he was just going on and on, two minutes left to go. I-L-L-I-N-I. And everybody knows it and everybody participates and they color their faces to go and do that. And so what would happen if last October, when all those millions of people were gathered together to celebrate the, the Cubs winning of their final World Series victory, and I use that, that word in two senses, hey. <laughs> that someone stood up and said to them, look, 
look, the cubs are not gods. What you're doing here is actually idolatry. But your celebration here is a form of false worship. And you need to turn away from the dark side to at least become a Cardinals fan. And, and people, started, people started pulling off their World Series championship t-shirts and started burning them right there. Do you think at that point that there wouldn't be many, many Cubs fans who were enraged and they started singing that stupid song again? You better believe they would. What if, what if you went to that picket line and you told them that their strike was a form of idolatry? What, what would happen if you went to a place like Ferguson or, or a place like Baltimore or a place like Charlotte and you tried to persuade the crowd that this writing was not pleasing to the true and holy God? You see, just because the gospel transforms and that will have an impact on the religion, economy, and culture of the day, you cannot think that everyone will want it or will gladly welcome it in. We cannot expect that everyone will be happy about it. The gospel will not be good for Planned Parenthood. The gospel will not be good for the porn industry. The gospel will not be good for movie and TV ratings. The gospel will not even be good for our economy because people will come to the realization that I can actually live without all this stuff. Friends, remember that we are to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, not worldly ones. And godly lives, or worldly lives, are really, worldly lives are anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Right? Worldliness, let me say that again. Worldliness is anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. And we've got to wonder, man, what do people see in us? I often wonder that. When people from the outside, they come in and they, they look at you and me. And we also have to be aware, especially in a university town, of the idol of respectability. We, we kind of have this mindset, you know what, I've just got to get through my program and if I can keep my head down and, and get my foot in the door so that I can have a seat at the table, then, then I will make it known what I'm about. But here it's been years since you've actually been seated at the table and nobody knows because you haven't talked about him. And that's because that for these years now, we've, we've actually been bowing down to the idol of respectability. Because it doesn't matter how smart you are doesn't matter what your emotional intelligence or your IQ quotient is. You start believing something against, that goes against what they believe that challenges their idols. And guess what? They're going to call you a stupid fool. Friends, we don't make a safe God and a safe gospel so that we can keep living our safe lives. I heard a quote on Gospel Coalition came from a friend of mine this morning, actually. It said, A God that only affirms and does not transform is not a God. It's a mirror. Friends, are, are you and I a threat to anyone's idols? To, to their sin, to their way of life. If we preach a gospel and believe a gospel and live a gospel that confirms the status quo, friends, it's not the gospel. Are there, conf are, are there 
sort of conclusions maybe that, that you refuse to reach? Are there beliefs that you fail to share? Are there convictions that you fail to live out because they seem impossibly strange to other people and that stigma is something that you want to avoid? If people believed and lived just like you and me, would any of the idol makers in town go out of business? And when we think about this, you know, in challenging our most dearly laid plans, our deepest loves, our most certain ideologies, our most treasured possessions, and our greatest pastimes, is the gospel toppling idols in your own life? It's meant to. That day by day, and degree by degree, we are being transformed into the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so gospel ministry transforms, but second, it does it without transgression. Now this is not as long just because I'm more of type A than I am type B. So, you know, just deal with it, I guess. But no, I've already kind of highlighted some of this, but I just want to make it clear to us that for those like me who get all amped about gospel transformation and want to go out and confront the idols of the day, yes, Paul was bold. Paul sought to persuade them that gods made without hands are not gods at all, but he and the church did so in a way in which they were able to remain unstained in a hostile world. The ministry priorities that we saw in Paul of engaging, evangelizing, establishing, equipping, and expanding, again, that we've seen throughout the book of Acts and right here in this passage, remind us that Paul's goal is not upheaval or self-righteous condemnation, but to preach the glory of Christ for the good of souls as the mission of Christ is fulfilled to the uttermost. We see from the time that he spent in each city and and his willingness to delay his plans for the good of the church as proof that change takes time, that it actually requires patience and submission to God's agenda rather than our own. But when given the resolve of the Spirit to depart, Paul didn't run roughshod over others in order to achieve his own agenda. No, he had compassion on them. He had this deep love for the lost and a deep love for the church that compelled him to humbly and earnestly put their own interests before his own. That's why we see that he sent helpers Timothy and Erastus, not not haters, but helpers to go ahead and to build up the church while he remained in Ephesus. When things would get too intense in a city, the way that it had in Philippi or in Thessalonica or now here in Ephesus, he moved on for the protection of the church and not himself. His goal was not to be a rabble-rouser, to be a thorn, to be an insurrectionist, a pot-stirrer, or a devil's advocate. He wasn't there for the sake of change, but there for the name of Christ, knowing that God is the only one who can truly change a sinner's heart. And so cultural change like this would happen as a result of the Word of God faithfully being proclaimed. The Word of God we see increasing and prevailing mightily, that this was his first priority. Paul persuaded and and sought to see Gentiles turn away from idols to the true and living God, not out of pride or self-exaltation because he was smarter or he was better or he knew more or whatever he would do to compare himself to other people. But it was out of love because he was willing to put himself in harm's way for their good. As he said, he would say to the Ephesians later on in Ephesians chapter 3, that his suffering actually served for their glory, not his own. When the mob grabbed Gaius and Aristarchus in verse 29, Paul wanted to go in among the crowd in order to help his brothers to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to do what he could to restore peace and order, not to further incite and anger the mob. In all these things, we see that it's about the glory of Christ and the good of others, not Paul's pride or self-preservation. 
when the disciples wouldn't let him go into the crowd there in verse 30. It wasn't because they were afraid of man, but because they were trying to be wise. They were trying to live in the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom would say, do not argue with a scoffer or a fool. Especially when you have a group of about 12,000 of them gathered together. And no one really knows why they're there. You see, wisdom would teach us that there is a time to speak and a time to remain quiet. In running out there to defend Christ, Paul would have actually proven their point that that he was trying to turn the world upside down, that that it's insurrection, and, and that insurrection would have brought reproach upon the name of Christ. See, it may have been well intentioned, but it would not have glorified him in the eyes of those who only saw Jesus as a source of revolt. You see, the church was very concerned about holiness. They did not want to bring reproach upon the name of Jesus Christ in any way. But that didn't mean that they cut themselves off from the unbelieving world either. That holiness could be achieved simply by separation. No, in verse 31, we see that Paul had developed friends even among these Asiarchs, these high-ranking officers, he was engaging with them. He was sharing life with them. He was developing friendships with them, but in a way that did not bring reproach upon Christ. And they, and they might not have, we, we don't know whether or not they were unbelievers. They might not have understood where he was coming from. They might have even hated the way that he challenged their idols, but he lived with them in such a way that they cared about him and they urged him not to venture into that theater. You see that same sort of care among those that you interact with who do not know Christ. Those kind are the kinds of relationships that we want to have with those who do not follow Jesus, but in a way that does not compromise the life-transforming, idol-toppling message of the gospel. Again, it's transformation without transgression. Not against God's laws and not against the laws of the land. Though there was boldness, there was also gentleness and peacefulness and reasonableness and and goodness and joy and love. And when we come down to verse 35, we can see God's common grace at work to protect His people. It says that when the town clerk, this is the most important guy in town, had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. Now friends, Christianity was clearly changing the way of life in Ephesus. Ephesus would become one of the leading church, early churches But it wasn't the ministry of man that toppled the dozens and dozens of 60-foot-tall pillars of the temple of Artemis. It wasn't the ministry of man that removed her sacred stone and deposed Artemis of her magnificence. God did that. He did it physically at the hands of the Goths. But he did it in their hearts by revealing to them that gods made with hands are not gods. If you saw this temple today, you would be very confused as to why anyone would consider this to be one of the seven great wonders of the world. It's basically a grassy plot with half a pillar sticking up about 35 feet in the air. That's it. And Artemis, what is Artemis now but an image scrawled on paper or carved in stone? She is counted as nothing more than myth. But God, God still reigns. In verse 37, the the town clerk 
affirms that these men are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers. They've done nothing to break the law of the land or even to profane their worship practices or their temple in any way. They simply taught that gods made with hands are not gods. And those who came to repent and believe in the gospel, they were the ones who would divulge their practices and would destroy that which, which formerly held them in captivity, in idolatry. That was their choice. It wasn't that they tore down the temples or tried to ruin the rituals of those who did not follow Christ. And even that has implication in the way that we think about living life together, right? You cannot make a Christian nation through laws that would prohibit the entrance of other faiths or would destroy the practices or their places of worship. Change does not come through riot or through uprising. It happens by preaching Christ and helping people to see that gods made with hands are not gods at all. That's what we're called to do. And so if Demetrius and, and the others, they had legal reason to file a complaint against them, then they should go through the legal challenge or the legal channels. But all this mob was doing in that moment was actually proving their own guilt, their own lawlessness, and their own transgression. There was no justification for this riotous commotion. And so with that, this town clerk dismissed the assembly. But friends, this, this town clerk right here, you need to understand is an example of God's common grace towards his people for their protection. That God in his wisdom, in his governance, in his goodness, actually does put people in place at different times and different seasons in order to achieve his ultimate purposes throughout the world. Right? Here you've got this guy who's reasonable, he's law-abiding, right? But he, he's not a believer. He's not a Christian. And yet he dispels and disperses this, this crowd. This is a God-appointed governmental authority whom God used to protect his people and to prove along with guys like Sergius Paulus and Galileo that we've read about before that Christianity is of no threat to the government. So we can trust God. I know that's hard to do. We get really caught up in politics and we think, okay, you know, not that we shouldn't be engaged in politics. We should, but, but we can live in fear that God cannot use unbelievers to advance his purposes. This town clerk is proof to the contrary. We just have to keep that in mind at the end of the day. God will accomplish all his purposes. He will protect his people. He will show that Christianity is not a threat to the government. Though when people recognize that God made, God's made with hands are not God's at all, the world will be changed. And so we see, um, or I guess I should say, as we seek gospel transformation in our community and in our culture and throughout the world, we need to be careful then to keep all the laws except for those that would require us to sin. Right? We, we don't want to transgress the law of God. We don't want to transgress the law of the land. We need wisdom to do this. We need genuine fear of the Lord. Right? It, it, we don't go to God's word as if to kind of say, like as a, as a magic eight ball to tell us how we should vote or what we should do in, in any given situation, but God gives us wisdom through our knowledge of him, his will, and his ways to inform our hearts so that we might have wisdom to know how to respond in each and every given situation. So we need to do that. We want to be careful how we shape our words and our actions and our lives so that we are less likely to be misunderstood, but instead we want to clarify the issues through sound teaching, through engaging dialogue, and through godly, reasonable living. And as we do battle against the idolatry, both in our hearts and in the hearts of others, we want to be careful to do so as a warrior who is joyful in Christ and not as a prideful, angry mercenary. We want to fight the good fight of faith that leads to redemption without rebellion or revolution. The upward call of Christ without 
uprising that leads to true spiritual awakening without aggression and spiritual change without political coup. Doing so in such a way that saving others out of the fire, showing mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Because that's what true gospel ministry is about. It's about transformation without transgression. Let's pray. Father, there is much for us to consider in this passage. And we pray much that you would show to us from your word. We do pray first and foremost for our own hearts and for the hearts of those that we interact with. Those that you have called us to be witnesses to. That we would all come to the realization that gods made with hands are not gods. And so first, open our eyes to discern and expose so that we might destroy these idols in our hearts, that we might truly live for Christ in a way that is holy and pleasing before Him, in a way that makes Him look glorious in the eyes of unbelievers, that even if they might hate the way that we challenge their idols, even if we, they might hate the gospel that we proclaim, they, they look at us and they, they see something different and they can't help but want it. I pray that we would know how to engage well in the world around us, to, to proclaim the name of Christ with our life and with our doctrine so that Christ might be glorified, souls might be saved, and that people would find their hope, their joy, their satisfaction, all that they're truly longing for in Him. So Lord, give us wisdom. Help us ultimately to live in the fear of You so that we might not sin against You as we gather and as we disperse as Your ambassadors living, finding our hope and our redemption, our peace, our satisfaction, our glory in Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.